Well, thanks for joining us, June. Really appreciate it. Great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, you're a great guest because you are the founder and CEO of Moms in Tech here in the UK. And you've done a lot in the venture capital space. You know, you're really well entrenched. Um, and so I thought it'd be great to get your perspective um, on being a woman and also being a mom in technology. So there are a few misconceptions and things that I was, I was thinking about out there, which is, um, you know, that the opportunities are endless or boundless for moms to actually work and operate in the tech space. But from your experience, that might not necessarily be the case. What's your, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, right from um, the education standpoint, obviously the stats tell us that, you know, very few girls carry on with a career in technology. So there are actually only 17% of women in tech. So that's like already like a massive barrier. There are not that many that are sort of exposed to this world of technology. And in theory, it's, it's, it's so perplexing because technology is one of those careers where it can be done remotely, it can be done flexibly. It just makes perfect sense that there should be more women embarking on a journey in tech. And it does frustrate me that um, more hasn't been done. Obviously, there's some amazing initiatives but there are still a few bottlenecks. And I think it goes back down to, um, you know, approaches in, in different workplaces as to what is what is OK in terms of work from home. You know, there's that feeling that you should be in the office. We still get that despite, you know, the reality is we're all working in lockdown at home and we know that these jobs can be done remotely. Um, but why is there still that blocker in, in that mindset at an organizational level as to just being more open and really stating it that these jobs can be done from home. And I think that's where we'll have more women applying. Um, just from my personal experience running Mums in Tech, there are some incredibly smart women out there who didn't study IT you know, at school, but I feel like anyone can learn anything at any point. And that's what Mums in Tech really showed. You know, these are people who, you know, perhaps were teachers or we had we had someone who was, you know, part of the London Ambulance Service. And she came on the course after eight weeks, had learned everything from UX, product, agile, built a website and was super interested on, you know, learning about, you know, all things tech. So it can be done. It's not too late. <laughs> Sorry to rant. No, that's fine. <laughs> I think more, more, more should be done. Yeah, no, that's perfectly fine. Uh, you know, I recall that you mentioned in our personal uh, conversations before that you, you know, took 14 months off maternity leave, right? Um, when you first, yeah. first did it. And that conversation initially, was it an easy one to have? Was it like, oh, of course, yeah, that's fine. Leave for X amount of time or, you know, three months, four months, nine months, whatever it is. How were those initial conversations when you even wanted to decide to go on maternity leave while you worked in a tech environment or a financial environment, should we say? Yeah, I mean, my very first maternity leave um, at Silicon Valley Bank, I was conscious that, you know, it was a very exciting time to be at that bank because, you know, we just got our banking license. I'd been part of that journey, sort of helping to do all the testing and, and watching it, the, the team grow from about 20 to maybe about 70 at the time where I was about to leave. And I thought, oh, my God, I am going to miss out on the most exciting time. You know, operations were still being built out. And it was hard to know that, you know, a year or even more was going to pass. And I was going to not be a part of those discussions and, and see that evolution of the bank. So, yeah, I was conscious that I my, my career might suffer as a result of it. But then you are torn because there is this new human, which you've grown and you have 
you have to look after in this case it was my little boy and um I, yeah I, I i gave everything to him obviously in that first year and i think that was really obviously what sparked um my my second maternity leave to be different because when i did come back obviously it it was a case that that particular role couldn't be done flexibly which if i'm being very honest was a bit of a shame because i would have loved to carry on in that role but it was full time and i wanted to come back part time so i moved into a different team and and i think you know everything happens for a reason if i hadn't moved teams perhaps i wouldn't have developed even more of a passion for startups because i got to work with earlier stage um tech companies which really sparked this curiosity and desire to to work even more um even more closely and have a better understanding of how tech companies are built but yeah it was you know very much at the back of my mind that you know how do we make sure that women who take a break from work don't come back disadvantaged how do you keep them in the loop how do you keep them learning and how can maternity leave be an opportunity for growth and and i think that's that's really what um i think companies should make sure is in place for employees so that when they come back they they have a a better chance of career progression cuz in some cases it can be a case where you come back and you're having to take a step back go into roles perhaps where they deem um can be done flexibly but might be a step back in your career yeah that that's an an unfortunate price to pay that society has sort of put on women in terms of the career progression right you leave for a bit and then you come back and you're not sure if the role is there and you know there's all sorts of of penalties that it seems that moms have to face uh before they uh, can rejoin the workforce but uh let's talk a little bit about when you actually came back so the expectations um that were placed on you or the level of productivity do you think that the expectation would have been you would get right back into it and you'd produce as the same level as you were before or was it an expectation that oh she would need to leave from time to time or you know she'd have to i don't know you know pump you know breast milk out to feed her kids yeah. and, you know all those kinds of things were there um was the expectation different and do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing um in my case I certainly felt that the expectation was that I would slot back in <laughs> back to how how I I was and and maybe that was just my perception of things that I I I almost put pressure on myself that you know I was one of the first sort of 20 employees obviously accumulated all this knowledge and that I would come back and be able to train up new people and that certainly was not the case um because I'd had 14 months off definitely experienced baby brain and didn't feel anywhere near as confident as I was prior to leaving so I definitely felt that there needed to be a sort of an easing back into the job time time frame that was in a way make make people aware that you know it will take time you can't just come back and sort of go full steam ahead without having any sort of keeping in touch days and those were available but I hadn't taken them up but it meant that I'd missed out on so many conversations and really felt very much out of the loop. Um so I think you know in in some organizations you know they're definitely better prepared and you know they they do you know take take that into account and as you were saying perhaps they do sort of lower their expectations of you and I don't know if that's a good thing because obviously we want to all believe that you know we're very capable but you know why are you expecting less of me I did all this amazing stuff before um why don't you think I can do it now so it's finding that balance because yes it's very easy to be left out of certain 
meetings that maybe will happen after you have to leave work or happen early, but you can't get to those because you're doing the drop off or maybe you're doing the pickup or you just have to get home just so you, you can spend some quality time with, with your family. So, um, yeah, I think there there is definitely um, some sacrifices that will happen as the result of family life. But I think it's important that, you know, women feel that they can be vocal and men, you know, both parents, I think it's important to, to make this um, a, a talking point with your team. And I think this is something I wish I had done earlier, you know, been vocal and said, well, I, I really would like to be a part of this conversation. Would you mind if we did this sort of within the hours that I'm in the office between, you know, at that point it was eight and four, you know, so my husband did the drop off and I did the pickup. So it, it's finding that confidence to actually say, please don't exclude me. I'm very capable. I would like to contribute. However, these are the parameters that I'm working within. Mm. Yeah, I know that makes sense. Playing devil's advocate just a little bit here. Um, if, imagine you're an employer and there's uh, you know, a woman that takes time off um, or has to have th- this flexible need around here, right? Um, if I use that as a justification to pay men more, for instance, because they stay for that year, they don't take as much maternity leave, um, they don't need that flexibility. I don't know if that translates into them being more productive or not. But what do you say to someone that would play that sort of card and say, there's a reason why I'm paying men more, um, because we have to make these allowances for women? How do you how do you rationalize that? Or how do you combat that? I would tell them to go and look at a woman's diary and see how much she gets done in that little time she's in the office. Because I think that is, this is something that, you know, it's obviously very difficult to um, to easily keep track. But maybe it's not actually productivity. There's loads of productivity tools. But the reality is, I know I work twice as hard my three days a week. Even now, I work three days a week in venture capital than working ridiculous hours in 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 a bank i think you know it's very easy for people to be sitting in the office till 11 o'clock probably just having a chat maybe they've just had way too many water cooler discussions and and i think i think you as a woman who has no choice but to work eight to four you're focused and i will say this from personal experience i sometimes would not take a lunch break you know, I, I would I would leave myself out of certain chit chatty discussions because I, I had to get that work done. I didn't want it to appear as if I was, you know, skiving at four o'clock. The reality is I got my work done when it was meant to be done. And I think um, I would challenge that person that says that the man should get paid more because I would say, look at my output. And I think it really has to be, you know, rethinking that conversation. It's not about bums on seats. I think it's really about output. Mm. How much are people delivering? If I'm getting my job done and more, then I want to be compensated exactly the same as that other person who has the luxury. And it is a luxury of being in the office for longer. But, you know, if I don't have that choice, I shouldn't be penalized for that. Yeah, I actually have uh, one of my direct reports. She went on maternity leave and, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, but... Actually, to your point about productivity, moms are some of the most productive people you will ever meet because their time is so valuable. Yes. What they'll get done in five minutes, it'll take someone else an hour to do. And so it's focused. Yeah, you have to be focused. Yeah, exactly. 100 <laughs> percent right. And um, so you know, that probably takes a mind shift uh, change from um, the number of hours that people 
work on something to actually what is the output. So an output-based uh, compensation or view of rewarding people as opposed to uh, a 60-hour, oh, I work 70 hours. You know how people re feel really chuffed with themselves about that, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I think it is down to output. Um, and I think, you know, even the way I work today, you, you know, you, you know the world of venture capital. At the end of the day, it is... A job that is so fluid you're spending time reading decks you're on twitter it's it's about information gathering it's about networking you know that won't necessarily fit into a three-day week but i think when you love your job you will do it regardless so you you don't know what that woman is doing outside of those you know her, her allocated hours she's probably still reading she's probably still keeping on top with her work because she does not want to disappoint and i think there's that commitment when you have that flexibility and it shouldn't be a luxury everyone should have the ability to work flexibly it's not just about childcare. i think it's about pursuing other passions um caring for, for elderly relatives there's so many reasons why somebody may need that flexibility but it's sort of appreciating that they bring something different to the table and they should be valued just as much as the you know, people who are able to work full time. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. You mentioned something there in terms of the venture capital industry. So just transitioning a little bit, you know, in the, in the venture capital industry, it's still predominantly male oriented, although there have been some improvements. So the percentage of female decision makers in venture capital did increase from about 9% in 2017 to about 13%. I believe that's a US statistic, but it is moving very incrementally in the right direction. But still, the majority of them have zero females in decision-making positions. Um, how do you think we can overcome that? You alluded to the pipeline, but then also, you know, being a mom or being a woman, you know, making sure that you have the flexibility and then we measure productivity and things like that. But why do you think the progress has been so slow? And what else do you think we can do in the venture capital industry specifically to address that? Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a pipeline. I think making more more women aware that they have a, a role to play in, in the venture capital industry, like any industry, I think it's very important that, um, you know, there is, there is more awareness that diversity of thought is a good thing. It's not just about saying, you know, the men and women. I think you, the reality is we will bring a different perspective. Um, and I think it's changing. There's obviously some great organizations like All Raise and, you know, Fem Street, which is a newsletter in the community that are making it more accessible. I think it's it's also down to role models. You know, I think how many how many females are we seeing at decision making level? Not that many, but the few that are out there are campaigning their butts off. They are making sure that they are bringing along other women behind them. Um, you know, I have a very... Um, active WhatsApp group that I'm a part of and I can constantly see uh, you know at them advertising different roles making sure that the women in that group are spreading the word to other women that they know there's um, you know there's a lot of training that's made being made available there's great groups like going VC with lots of resources and I think there's that element of advocacy we just have to keep you know, shouting about it, making other women know from different industries that you can get into venture capital. Those of us that have had a very um, uh, untraditional path, sort of flying the flag and saying, you can come in from different routes. You don't have to have the, you know, Cambridge, Harvard, you know, Oxford to investment bank to VC route. There are other ways. Mine is not that route. So I think I'm very conscious that I have to let people know that 
I got in, you know, and, and, and I work flexibly and I often talk about it because it's important that they know that you can make it work, especially as, as a mom, you know, having to juggle. You don't have to um, worry that, that there is no space in this in this world for you, that it won't work for you, because I think it's actually one of the, the flexible careers out there. You're not stuck to your desk. You can do it from wherever. Um, and I think you can make the role your own to an extent. Being an advocate is something that requires bravery. It's something that requires you to see a role model and, and aspire to be like someone and really push the boundaries. Was there What were you most nervous about before you decided to be more of an advocate and, and talk about you know, the fact that there's a lack of women in there. Well, just walk me through a bit of your thought process, because I can imagine that's a bit daunting to be, first of all, not just the, one of the few women, but secondly, one of the few women of color in an industry which is male-dominated. I mean, what was going through your mind? Were you nervous? Were you scared? Were you thinking about your perception? All those kinds of things. Yeah, and, and that's a really good question. And I, I, you know, my mom, my mom, as much as she admires what I do, she often says, June, how do you do all this? And I say, you know, because... I do feel it's my responsibility. I do feel that um, you, you know, you can't just wait around waiting for change. Um, I think I've always been that sort of person who will stick her hand out and try and help someone. It's it's just always been part of my nature. I think um, I got the award for goody goody two shoes in school, <laughs> so there's there is something in there. Um, it says a lot, but I I think I've always wanted to help people. I've always been um, conscious that. I want to be, you know, someone who helps to change the world, as corny as it sounds. That's always been how I thought about it. So, um, yeah, I didn't really think too hard about the personal implications on myself. All I kept thinking was, how can I help change things? How can I make it better? Because the reality is um, we, we, we can't do it alone. It's, it's not just down to me. So what I, I do is bring people along on the journey, find other advocates, people of influence who can help actually make this change and i think i'm that person who likes to bring people together to to, to unite and and to to you know try and change the world together and it's baby steps we're, we're getting there slowly you know i'm doing little things like organizing events for female founders i've been mentoring people on the side whenever i see an application i'm making sure i'm spreading the word to other other women other people of color and just seeing you know doing whatever we can to help change the stats because the reality it's not going to change overnight there's a lot of mindset um shifting but i'm privileged that i can be in a lot of these rooms and have these conversations so i make sure that since the door was open for me, I keep that door open for other people. And, and I and I make sure I use that chance to use my voice in, in, a, in a good way. Um, and it, it's what I love. It's, it's It feels natural. And I think if it was anything other than that, then you know, it would feel like hard work. And it doesn't. So I, I carry on <laughs> the work. <laughs> oh, that's great. No, that's really amazing. And I know that you're viewed um, uh, as a a leader, a female leader, a strong female leader, not just in the VC community, but, um, you know, in, in the financial community, uh, in many regards and respects. Do you think there are any differences in the way women lead and the way men lead within organizations? Or do you think that leadership um, is agnostic to gender? That's a good one and a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, you, you know, I... I, I... I think there's often that feeling that, yes, women are more empathetic, 
you know, and, you know, we lead with our hearts. But I, I will say that, you know, I've, I've, I've met some, you know, really stern women <laughs> and I've met some very, very, you know, kind hearted men. And, and I think, you know, what, what's, what makes us different? Yeah, we, we do. There is ultimately a bit of a gender lens. We can't deny that. But I think good leadership is good leadership. Um, and I think good people are good people. Mm. And you'll, you'll find people who are measured and um, hopefully see the world through a lens where, you know, they, they're willing to take into different, take into account different perspectives. Um, I think that's what makes good leadership, in my opinion. I try to see when I'm speaking to someone, I try to think of it from their point of view and, and try and remove bias you know, from my thinking as much as possible. And I think um, if we had, hopefully, more people who, um, you know, just approach it just from a very human, human lens um, and not sort of this airs of, um, of power. Yeah. You touched on something that was very interesting there, which is the bias, the unconscious bias and all those types of things. I'm personally facing a dilemma as well where I'm trying to advocate for things and, you know, you can speak up, but sometimes that doesn't translate into action, right? Where the rubber meets the road by actually getting more women in tech companies or not, uh, you know, having them penalized for taking time off and all those kinds of things, right? But the question here is how exactly do you get all these um, talking points, all the, this unconscious bias, all those types of things to translate into action without mandating it in, in terms of, oh, we need to have 50% of women in here. Because I know yeah. that can hurt sometimes. Sometimes it can help, like affirmative action in the US. But do you think that there are intangible ways that'll, that'll translate into actual action? Or do you have to make it tangible in terms of KPIs, metrics, and things like that? And that's the way to really make the change. I mean, it's a bit of both. I think you do have to have some element of mandate in that, you know, perhaps we, you know, it could be things like making sure you, you have an equal a pool of applicants that you're looking at. So it's not just the one token black, black candidate in there, you know, wet, but, but then it goes a step further. Is how are you sourcing your candidates? Are you even reaching the right communities? You know, and, and, and you know, people will say, oh, but no, there's no black people applying to these jobs. Did you did you go one step further and try and reach them where they are? And I think that's so important that, you know, we measure how much of that are we doing, how proactive. There has to be a proactive element to it. Um, and But obviously the last thing we want is for a candidate who's not suitable for the job to be hired, as we often find in our lovely country, Nigeria. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it's, yeah, it, it's, it's make you want to ultimately have the best people for the job so that someone doesn't come tomorrow and say, well, you hired a terrible person. Well, we don't want to do this anymore. And then it becomes the end of that conversation. Get the best candidates, but you're going to work a bit harder to do that just to make sure that they actually get to see your job application, take the time to understand them, take the time to check yourself and your bias, make sure you've done the work on you so that when they come in, you're willing to, to, to really listen and, 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 and hear them and, and see the value that they can actually add. Because I think that's really important that they're not coming and wasting their time because you're not ever going to let them in through the door. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. Getting that pipeline and that, that process from start to end, because it's not just 
where you're recruiting, but it's the recruitment process itself. Once they're in the company, how they develop, all that kind of stuff. It's it's a long process. Retention, Retention exactly. Yes. You know, there's so many elements to yeah. it. Um, in fact, there's an interesting statistic about how if you have that one token black or one token female candidate, um, this the, the chances of them getting hired are almost 0%. But as soon as you have two it jumps up by like three or 400%, the chances of one of them yes. getting hired. So in other words, having just the one token person, female or whatever, uh, ethnic diversity, it, that doesn't really help. Um, so that yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. But um, so let's talk a little bit about, we've talked about the recruiting and the sourcing, but once you're actually in the company, the development programs or even the selection criteria for partner positions and all those kinds of things, do you think that, they are favorable towards uh, maybe men or maybe Caucasians or anything like that? Um, and how can we try and improve the ratio once someone is in the company, the retention piece that you spoke about? Yeah, that, that's that's super important. And I think, you know, it's it's very important that the company takes the time to to really mentor, you know, okay, in my world, it's, it's definitely an apprenticeship. You know, you... you you're not going to learn the job overnight. So it means you're spending time with the partners, talking to them, and, and really being in that circle. But you, you need to feel welcome. So it's really up to the partners to take the time to, to try and understand you. And you also do your bit to help them, you know. And, and for me, I'm very open. I talk about my culture a lot. And, and, and you know, they've met my family. Um, and and I, de I genuinely feel at home. But also what is great is that there are other communities of black investors and you know you know about 10 by 10 VC we have a whatsapp group that's really active and it's great for me to see sort of the journeys of, of the other investors what's helped them just sort of us troubleshooting together I think that helps retention as well uh, because we we can help each other and say okay well have you thought about doing this and there's this training plan um, and just understanding what could be the next step in, in, in our careers and how do we make sure that we are the best we can be, how do we keep evolving. Um, so yeah, there's that personal um, responsibility, but also the responsibility of the firm to make sure that you do see your progression path. Um, and, and you know, I, I do believe in having a mentor or having a sponsor in, internally who ensures that you are constantly moving forward but keep having an open conversation about where you want to get to, what you want to learn. Um, that's all very important. Obviously, continue to build your, your personal brand um, and, and continue adding value. Yeah, you're actually an expert, at least in my opinion, on building a personal brand because I've, <laughs> I've seen you in so many different places and forums and you know you seem to have been able to do that. How do you think women can build um, a good personal brand um, are there any tactics or tools or concepts or principles in building that brand so that, you know, you raise awareness, as you're mentioning, that you are here, you are available, you have certain needs, you have certain capabilities. How do you build a brand as, as a female leader? Yeah, I mean, just, just you know, from my personal experience, um, you know, just going way back to even when I started Moms in Tech, I didn't even have a Twitter account <laughs> uh, prior to, to March 2015. So I set it up then and started small you know you start following a couple of people that you respect you start sharing some thoughts 
I love reading, so I, I read a lot of blogs and listen to podcasts. And what I do is I tend to share it and you know maybe connect with the person who who wrote the blog, have a conversation. You know, learn to abandon being shy. And I think that's been the the best thing I ever did was you know realize that everyone's human. Everybody likes to chat. Um, but obviously, you go to them with um, a, a reason as to why they why they should talk to you. You know, I've read your blog post. I really, I really love this thing you said. I'd really love to carry on the conversation. Very rarely will they say no. You know, even some of the busiest people will make the time for like a five, you know, ten minute chat. Um, but don't be afraid to ask. I, I also love um, writing. So you know, very often I will, you know, do a guest post for someone or, or write on on Medium. And I also started writing on LinkedIn, you know, when I started Mums in Tech, just just documenting the journey on, you know, every week, whatever we learned, I would I would write about it. You slowly build a brand there, people engage. And, and I think it's important that you sort of um, give as much as you take. So, you know, when that person that you had a conversation with, write something great, share it, you know, sort of it's a cycle. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's also down to action, you know, be, being willing to give up your time. So I, I mentor people and I make myself available so that when, when they have questions, they know they can come back to me. I think you can build a brand for yourself that way as, as well. Just being, um, you know, the super connector, the one, the one that makes introductions. You could be the one, the one who has always, you know, five, ten minutes to go through the pitch deck. There are so many things you you can do, but I think hone in on what you enjoy, and then it just feels really feeling natural for you. Yeah, I I don't know how you have the time to do this because you've got you know a <laughs> couple of kids and you're working in a very uh you know stressful environment. At least venture capital from the outside seems very uh you know intense, and you have deadlines and numerical figures you need to hit. You know, there are all these different things. Um, how do you stay? Uh, I don't want to say Zen, but um, how, do you, how do you stay calm amidst balanced. balanced? Exactly. How do you stay balanced amongst all these different things? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I do do a lot. I know um, people often, often ask me, how do you do it all? Um, and just to caveat, I do work three days at Samos. So I, I, I'm usually working Tuesday to, to Thursday. And then outside of that, the kids, are all in the entertainment world so pre-covid at least we were you know jetting off to auditions and and i also do a bit of modeling and and, and acting on the side which i love so i i do love this portfolio um career and i think in a way they balance it, each other out very nicely so there's some days where i'm doing a lot of networking there's some days where i'm, I'm doing a lot of reading um, and then I'm, you know, out and about quite a lot, which is something that I find gives me energy. I wouldn't say I'm your um, sit down at home type of girl, <laughs> but you know, I love listening to podcasts. I find that relaxing. So I'm learning, and then I sort of slowing down a little bit. Um, I watch a lot of Netflix. That helps me keep zen. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a closet t- um, TV addict. So okay, that's, that's something that. Um, I do watch a lot of TV, believe it or not. There's there's time, um, and and I and I do I do things like yoga, and and I really believe in mindfulness. So you know, got got um, calm app on my phone. I also love Happy Not Perfect, but yeah, speaking to family, speaking to friends. Um, I think it's important to make time for for real life. Uh, as much as we all love our jobs, and we could in theory spend all, all our time on Twitter and, and Instagram and speaking to brilliant founders, it's important to, to unwind. You know, 
every once in a while. Fantastic. Well, that's pretty much what we wanted to go through today. Uh, if people want to, you know, reach out to you or is there any particular message you'd like to get out there to our audience? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to encourage people who are interested in, in getting into venture capital to, to reach out to me. I'm happy to share uh, resources with you. There are a ton. Um, we definitely need more women. We need more, you know, people of color in venture capital. Um, so I would encourage you to, to, you know, find someone that you feel like you can connect with, start following the journey, speak to them. Um, the reality is, yes, a lot of the jobs are not advertised. It can be in closed loops. So I think it's important that you ask, are you hiring? And if you're not, please don't be shy to ask for an internship because the chances are, you know, you do that and, and you can make your way in, in, in very convoluted ways or start a podcast, um, you know, start building your brand because it's always going to be super helpful when you do try and knock on the door to say, these are all the things that I've been doing you know, VC is a natural fit for me. Um, and for founders who are looking for funding, please reach out. Always happy to mentor, always happy to look at a deck. So don't be shy. Sounds good. Thank you so much, June. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Fantastic. And we can stop our recordings here.